I think what we need to do is explain how our principles of free speech, free inquiry, will help serve the cause of justice. The First Amendment, the constitutional freedom of speech and freedom of conscience that is the bulwark of our democracy. There was a passion in what was being said, affirming this, this what people consider a sacred constitutional right, freedom of speech and freedom of association. From the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, this is Speech Matters, a podcast about expression, engagement, and democratic learning in higher education. I'm Michelle Deutschman, the center's executive director and your host. It's hard to believe that we've reached the tail end of summertime. Many colleges and universities head back to campus in the coming weeks, and with that re-entry comes some trepidation about what to expect, especially from an expression perspective. As the upcoming presidential campaign launches into higher gear, some anticipate an increase in dialogue and dissent on campus. This is why today's guests, Dr. Alice Yao, a sergeant with the Chicago Police Department, and Dr. Jill Dunlap, Senior Director for Research, Policy, and Civic Engagement at NASPA, are the perfect pair to address issues related to speech, campus law enforcement, and student affairs administrators. But before I tell you more about Jill and Allie and their important work, let's turn to class notes, a look at what's making headlines. As we discussed in last month's episode, the use of diversity statements in hiring at universities continues to be a contentious issue. As the debate and litigation on the subject grows, Arizona's public universities have decided to discontinue their use of diversity statements in job applications. The Arizona Board of Regents announced the change in policy last week following a report from the Goldwater Institute, which referred to the diversity statements as, quote, political litmus tests, unquote. Public university systems in other states, including Texas and North Carolina, have also banned the use of diversity statements in hiring. Last week, six professors and two faculty unions in Idaho sued the state for its No Public Funds for Abortion Act, claiming that it violates First Amendment rights. The law prohibits state funds from being used to, quote, promote or, quote, counsel in favor of abortions, close quote. And professors argue that the law is too vague to interpret. Unclear about where the line is between permissible and prohibited speech on promoting or counseling in favor of abortion, some professors are just avoiding the topic altogether for fear of being prosecuted. University leaders at Texas A&M are facing backlash as details emerge about the temporary suspension of Professor Joy Alonzo in response to her alleged comments about the Texas lieutenant governor. During a lecture on the opioid crisis, Alonzo, a leading opioid expert, criticized Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's role in managing the crisis. According to the Texas Tribune, after Patrick learned about the alleged comments, he contacted Texas A&M University System Chancellor and asked him to investigate Alonzo. This case is yet one more that raises serious concerns about political interference in the academic affairs of public universities across the country, one of the gravest threats to higher education. Now back to today's guests. Dr. Alice Yao has been with the Chicago Police Department, CPD, for 17 years and has attained the rank of sergeant. Alice started her career on patrol and is currently at the CPD Academy overseeing the physical skills unit. 
Alice trains recruits from CPD, campus law enforcement, Chicagoland area law enforcement, Amtrak, Metra, and hospitals on control tactics, use of force, and de-escalation tactics. She holds a PhD in psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Dr. Jill Dunlap is a Senior Director for Research, Policy, and Civic Engagement at NASPA, Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education. Prior to her current role, Jill worked at three different higher education institutions for more than 14 years. Jill's current role involves translating a range of federal and state policy changes impacting higher education for campus administrators. Her most recent published research involves exploring the differences between student and administrator perspectives on advancing racial climate on campus. She holds a PhD in political science and public administration from Northern Illinois University. In addition to all of this, I am proud to share that Jill and Allie were co-fellows at the Center during 2020-21 and have been working on their fellowship project, Mind the Gap, Administrator's Role in Reducing Tensions Between Campus Law Enforcement and Student Activists since then. Not only are they both razor sharp and super accomplished, but they are terrific human beings, and it's my privilege to call them colleagues and friends. So happy to have both of you on the show. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having us, Michelle. I listened to every single episode and I couldn't be more excited to be here. Thanks, Michelle. Super excited. So my first question, I feel like sort of sounds like a start of a joke, um, right? A student affairs administrator and a police officer walk into a bar. But if I remember correctly, I think this was sort of how the idea for your fellowship project began. And I'm wondering um, if I am remembering correctly, and if one of you could tell us about that first meeting of the minds um, when you conceived of uh, this project. Thanks, Michelle. That is uh, how we love to introduce ourselves, because what does a student affairs person and a police officer have in common? And uh, we both like to say free speech. Our project started uh, one cold night in Chicago in 2019. I called Jill up and asked to meet for a drink at the closest bar to both of our places. We started talking about protests and Jill asked, why do cops need to be at protests? I responded, and said, I agree. Why do cops need to be there? If things go peacefully, there's no criminal activity, there is no need for cops to be there. Our conversation led to talking about the tension and the rub between students and cops when there are protests. Given that we both love the pedagogy, uh, Jill went one step further and said, we need to do research on this. We ordered another drink came up with a hypothesis, reviewed some literature, and this is where most of our ideas about research kind of go and stop. But this night, Jill started writing some stuff on a paper napkin and said, we have to do this. I said, I'm not so sure about that. I just successfully defended my dissertation. I'm not sure I want to read more peer-reviewed articles. I haven't read a book in a very long time for pleasure, so... I don't know. And, you know, if you if you know Jill, she's really good at um, making you go to places where you're uncomfortable. And um, she convinced uh, me to do more research with her. And uh, she not only convinced me, she found a place where um, we can do the research 
And uh, I think uh, Jill can take it from that point. I think I'm going to have to get Jill a, a, a button that says takes you to uncomfortable places. So I'll let you, Jill, I'll let you respond to that telling of the story before I ask Allie another question. It's so funny the way that different stories unfold, right? When in different people tell them, um, I love the idea of that button. Um, yeah. So we just started talking and um, we ended up applying for the fellowship. And uh, like you said, in the 2020 um, cohort and really started to dig in on um, thinking about where the tensions are on campus. And that was the genesis of the project. We, um, I, I think the, the beauty of it is that, you know, we come from very different backgrounds. And so we both came into it with our own set of assumptions about what we might find. Um, and then the project really unfolded in a really beautiful way and, and brought us to where we are today with it. So before we dig a little more into what you actually were studying and who you were um, interviewing, I want to ask Allie one more question, which, I mean, for Jill, I think when you work at three different colleges and universities, people understand the nexus between your interest in this topic in particular. But Allie, I want to circle back to you, to why, you know, a municipal police officer became sort of compelled to research campus law enforcement issues. Well, I... I trained campus officers as part of my role for CPD. Um, I prepare them for scenarios, use of force, and in cases of ca campus protests so that they know the limits of what they can and cannot do in those circumstances. I also have been part of protests where I went, I was standing shoulder to shoulder with other officers during a protest where I kind of thought about why the officers needed to be there. So um, I saw a protest from the very, very beginning to the very, very end. Um, I saw how it was prepared, um, the roles of the officers when they were there, what they did, and uh, was actually a part of it. So that's that. those are some conversations that Jill and I have all the time about officers and how campuses uh, use officers and how uh, students respond to officers during protests. Um, and this is one of the things I love about this project and talking with both of you is that it isn't always what one would expect, right? Because if I'm going to be honest, I think I would probably expect that law enforcement officers feel like they need to be at protests. And so let's talk a little bit about that first year. Um, what were you hoping to learn? Who did you talk to? Um, you know, and then of course, there's the context, the framework, which is that you applied before the murder of George Floyd, but then did your research kind of in the aftermath of that. And maybe you could talk also about how that impacted who you selected and how you went about gleaning the information. Maybe that's too big of a question. So break it down however you want. Sure, I can start. Um, I think our goal when we first started out, again, it goes back to Allie's telling of the, you know, the bar story, but um, that I came into it thinking like, why do law enforcement always insert themselves into situations where there's protests when they're meant to be peaceful? Why do they need to be there? And Allie, coming from the law enforcement perspective, was like, I, I don't think that law enforcement want to be there unless there is something that they you know need to be there in terms of protecting someone's rights or if something goes sideways and things go violent, right, to be on hand. Um, and yet we knew that all these tensions were arising. And, and like you said, Michelle, this was happening before George Floyd and all of the protests that subsequently followed across the country and on campuses. And so we really were sort of like looking at the history of, of protest movements and um, and thinking about all the ways that law enforcement, um, you know, their various roles in those protests. And so I think what we were 
I think hoping to accomplish was that we really thought, you know, if we can sort of hit at what the tension is here, then we can identify what the factors are that are leading to greater tensions that bubble up um, to, you know, I think flare ups between student protesters and campus law enforcement and thinking through how, you know, if we can identify those factors, then we can sort of address them um, and then lead to less tension between those two um, populations on campus when there is protest. And so um, I, I think I came into it thinking, well, law enforcement just needs to be better trained, right? Like they need to know when they need to be somewhere and when they don't need to be somewhere. Um, and I think maybe, and I'll let Allie respond, but she might've been like, actually, I think students might need to know a little bit more about what are the bounds of um, free speech on campus, and when does their when do their free speech uh, rights stop, and when do you know when does it um, boil over into you know breaking the law? And so we, like I said, the the real beauty of it is that we came with really different perspectives on who might need more education or training, and what we found was something totally different. But Ali, did you want to add anything to that? I think when we first talked about it, um, we also mentioned that a lot of times when decisions are made, the people that are actually doing the work are not talked to and not uh, asked about for their opinions. So what we did was we made sure we talked to students from various campuses. We made sure we talked to law enforcement from various campuses so that we would have a good idea from the people that actually do the work about how they felt about it. Did they really need more training? Did they really need more education? And, um, you know, in order to answer our hypothesis, uh, those were the, the people that we had to talk to. We couldn't just read articles about it or give our own opinion about it. We wanted to make sure we, we got the right people in place in order to, to make that decision. And I might just add that we, like, really had to adjust our approach as we went along. Um, our goal was to interview or to do focus groups with law enforcement and to do focus groups with um, student activists, right? So we asked if they identified as student activists when we were doing our recruitment at these institutions. And, um, you know, the focus groups with students, they like fed off of each other and, you know, talked about, um, you know, different ways that they'd been engaged in protests and, you know, what they felt the role of law enforcement was in those protests and that kind of thing. But we quickly realized that it would that, that same um, that same approach was not going to work when we were talking to law enforcement. I don't know if you want to speak to that, Allie. Well, the students don't have, they have less risks than law enforcement does because when we say so, um, when we talk to them, they, we already know what department they are from. So it's very like it, like for any organization, it's very hard to speak freely about your organization as opposed to if you are paying to go to school in a certain place, uh, your your risk is a little bit less. So because we we found that there is more risk, uh, we did um, interviews instead of focus groups so that we can get more information from, from the officer. Um, we got a lot of very good information from these very smart students, but uh, it was much harder to get information from officers. We had to ask the right question and it was a little bit easier because uh, it, it, I was an officer asking another officer this question. I think that uh, there was a little bit of a, a rapport already established. Oh, that's great. And going back to the kind of George Floyd 
the murder and then the summer of 2020 going into a year after those protests, but also at a time when people weren't on campus um, because of COVID, how did any of that play into either how you posed your questions or the way that you approached the issue? Or maybe it didn't have an impact. I think we did hear from a lot of students that we did focus groups with that they had been involved in protests. Um, I will say that because it was in the middle of COVID, um, they weren't necessarily, if they were involved in protests around the murder of George Floyd, that it wasn't necessarily that they were doing that on campus. Um, so many of them were taking to um, protesting in their you know local communities um, just because they felt like there was fewer, maybe less um less opportunities, um, fewer opportunities to protest on campus or that there were fewer students living on campus at that point. Um, but many of them said that they had participated in protests. And I think um, it's interesting because I, I, I don't think students make a distinction between their right or opportunity to protest on campus versus being in the campus community. Um, and so I think that's an interesting distinction that like could warrant its whole other like own research project. But I, um, the students wholeheartedly, and Ali, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, but like overwhelmingly said when we asked them, what do you think law enforcement's role is when these protests are happening? And they were like, to shut it down. And I think that was heightened by the fact that the, the like in these in this particular set of instances, right? Like the students were protesting the very existence of law enforcement, so their presence was unwelcome. Um, just because that was the nature of the protest, right? They weren't out protesting a different issue and law enforcement were there. They were protesting the, the existence of law enforcement in those cases. Um, but I will say, we, you know, we, we press students and, and sort of challenge them to think about like, okay, well, when you've been involved in protests on campus before, like, is it possible that law enforcement was called out just to make sure that everything goes smoothly or to protect you from counter protesters? And I will say just again, on the whole, students said, no, they did not see law enforcement in a protective mechanism. They consistently said that um, either law enforcement wanted to be there to shut them down and to shut down their voices, or that they also very clearly identified that administrators use law enforcement as a middleman in those instances when administrators didn't want them to be protesting. And so they um, indicated that they felt like administrators were calling law enforcement out to stifle their protest efforts. Well, I would be interested. I mean, I think that's fascinating. And I would be interested to hear, you know, from Ali about what law enforcement said when pressed about that issue, right? I mean, I'm guessing that law enforcement does not see their role as their goal to stifle the voices of dissenters. But I want to let you speak to that from, you know, the evidence. This is an interesting question because uh, we developed our research prior to the uh the George Floyd murder. It was, uh, I want to say at least six months prior, and we didn't do much changing with the questions um, when we conducted it during the riots. Uh, I want to say that when we talked to officers, they wanted students to protest. I believe a officer said that I have a daughter in school I want her to protest, but I want her to do it the right way. I want her to do understand what the consequences are if she breaks the law. I want her to do her. I want her to protest in a way where it's safe, and I don't want to stifle her her free speech. So we heard a lot from officers that want students to engage in their their First Amendment rights. 
They want them to, to protest. They want them to do all these. They, they even went as far as to say that we are developing, I want to get this right, but um, it, it was on the lines of students are protesting on campuses now, and they will in the future protest outside of campuses. So we want to make sure they understand there are consequences and they might not have the same protection if they are on campus, if they were to protest off campus. Well, I think that, you know, ultimately, right, universities are a place of education. And I think that is sort of beautiful that even in that context, law enforcement is saying, even though the law applies the same here, we might not enforce things the same way in a campus community as you will on the city streets and that you need to be aware of that. So I think, you know, you get sort of to the end of all of this amazing conversation and discussion, and we have to go back to kind of this initial hypothesis. And I think maybe one of you can talk about, you know, how things held up against what you originally thought would be your conclusions and then, you know, what happens next. Yeah, I can start. I think, um, you know, we we thought that students, we went into this thinking students needed to be better educated about what their free speech policy says on campus. And also that, um, you know, I thought maybe law enforcement needed better training about what the free speech policy was and when they should and shouldn't be uh, at a protest um, or what their role would be in that protest. And I think what we really found was that um, students do need more education about what their campus policy says. Um, And I can tell you from having worked at three different campuses that we throw a lot at students in orientation and probably what's happening. And we, and we heard this from students in the focus groups, right? Is that um, they're like, yeah, I think someone maybe on the second day of orientation might've mentioned free speech, but I, I don't really remember. Right. So they, they remember sort of hearing about it in the background, but because they're getting, you know, overloaded with every bit of information we want them to take with them for four years and all of the phone numbers and people that they need to remember. Right. Um, that they, they were just sort of, it was like a vague recollection of having heard free speech mentioned. Um, so we did find that they needed more education. I would say, um, and ongoing education, right? Like, I, I don't know a lot of students who go into their, um, and maybe some do, but I don't know a lot of students who go in and sit in their first year orientation program and think, man, I can't wait to get out and protest, right? And so these are things that you decide as you're, you know, developing and learning about the things that you are um, upset about or want to protest, right? And so it's like your third second, third year, fourth year, right, where you are really getting engaged in some of these issues. And um, you don't remember what, you know, that that free speech um, 10 minute spiel was from orientation. And so ongoing education, I think, was another thing that we found that was um, really important. And then um, I also like what we heard ultimately, which I think is leading us to where we are now, is that um, we heard from students that they felt like law enforcement were being used as a tool to stifle their protest. And also we heard from law enforcement that they felt like administrators didn't have a key sense of when law enforcement needed to be involved and when they didn't. So that law enforcement sometimes gets used as um, an intermediary or a, I'm trying to find the best word to use, but sort of the, the like mediator of an issue that isn't, you know, doesn't involve a violation of the law. So they sometimes felt like, why are we here? Um, and so I, and, and I, we can talk about this later, but I, I don't want it, this to come across as though I'm 
um, bagging on administrators, right? Like I was a campus administrator for 14 years, but I do think um, when we went back and, and circled back and talked to administrators, they agreed with us that what our findings were is that um, we don't do a great job of training new professionals coming into student affairs roles specifically around what the campus free speech policy is, how they can best support students who do want to protest and what the bounds and limitations of those, um, those rights to protest look like. One of the things that I love about your story is that it role models intellectual humility so well, which I think is something I wish there was more of in academia, right? So like your initial hypothesis was partially flawed, but you didn't throw up your hands, right? You pivoted. And I think sometimes for people, the completion of their fellowship year and project is an ending point. But for the two of you, it was a jumping off point, right? And your next step was to create a curriculum and workshop for administrators, right? Based on what you learned is that you've now piloted at two large public institutions with a third pilot coming up at the end of this month at a mid-sized private institution. And I'd love for you to tell us what some challenges are that you've encountered, maybe some surprises, maybe things that you've found um, exciting. And then... Um, after that, we'll like share with our listeners how they can be part of learning um, from both of you. The genesis of where we're at currently and, and doing some workshops at um, different institutions around the country was um, based on the conversations that we had with uh, student affairs administrators. And we specifically took that sort of gap in um, you know where these tensions are and went back and um, spoke with I think it was 10 vice presidents of student affairs uh, from different types of institutions, different sizes, public, private, two-year, four-year um, across the country. And we said, hey, what we heard from students was this, and what we heard from law enforcement was this. And they nodded in agreement on the whole and said, that's absolutely right. And they were like, a lot of people come into student affairs support roles, having been student activists on campus, right? And so they carry forward that passion for working with students and working on student issues and really like civic engagement and encouraging students to, you know, take full advantage of all of these opportunities. And yet they sometimes have a hard transition to um, like rounding the corner and understanding that then they become in a support role, trying to help students understand what those limitations look like. And so, you know, what we heard from vice presidents was, yeah, we really should do a better job of training our staff and the division of student affairs and all these people who have really, um, important jobs supporting students, but really have a lot of the front facing work of, um, engaging with students and sort of like helping them, you know, maybe filter out what might be misinformation that they get from each other um, and really sort of honing in on, you know, how can we best support students who want to be engaged in this way? And so um, what we did was take that information and, and you know, develop a, um, a workshop for administrators. But I, I will say that as far as the ones that we've done so far and the things that we've learned um, are that institutions do this in a really wide variety of ways. So we've been to institutions that are like, yeah, we don't really have a lot of protest activity here, so we don't really have to worry about it. And, you know, Allie and I push a little bit and we're like, okay, well, what if, you know, somebody wants to hang an offensive poster and you have, you know, a front desk staff person in campus activities that tells them they can't because they disagree with it, right? So like free speech issues on campus and supporting students who um, are engaging doesn't necessarily have to look like protest. And so I think um, having helping administrators and staff turn the corner around like this is everybody's job and it's not just one person or the civic engagement office's job, right, to help students understand um, what these sticky issues can look like and how they play out on campus. And so um, 
We've also been to campuses that have really well-designed teams, interdisciplinary teams that respond instead of law enforcement when there is campus protest. But then sort of, again, working with those institutions to think about like, are you all debriefing after you have critical incidents so that you're talking amongst yourselves about lessons learned um, and thinking through, you know, like, where is your policy accessible and, and those sort of other more technical issues. And I think what we're seeing is that there's just a really um, broad range. And some of it is, I think, campus culture specific, right? Every campus looks different. Every campus is going to do this differently. Um, but I think trying to find some common ground where there's at least a base level knowledge among campus administrators is something that I think we're finding is um, really important to the campuses that are for the campuses that we're visiting. After talking to all of these awesome administrators from various schools, um, I found out that um, campus administrators like to talk about their job as much as cops like to talk about their job. And we all have our war stories. And the commonality is um, you can't make some of this stuff up sometimes. So when I started talking to them, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like they, they were telling us these stories and we were able to use a lot of information that we got from these interviews with administrators and implement them into the curriculum. And um, I, I can't say how amazing that information is that we got from these administrators because that really, really shaped how we can better relay information to administrators. Well, and it's so interesting because because your research has spanned this sort of critical time period, which is both sort of the summer of 2020, George Floyd and COVID. I'm wondering now as you you know, are piloting things this summer as people are really like back on campus, as we're in an, another election cycle where students still have really strong feelings about whether law enforcement should be there. You know, we, as you may know, did an episode um, with some folks from Davis and Penn State who both had really challenging events. And one of the things the student president of Davis talked about was what do you do when law enforcement is there to help protect students, but students feel like having law enforcement there elevates the risk? And how do you negotiate some of those things? And I'm wondering, um, you know, what kinds of things you're thinking about saying to administrators? Because I imagine that these are the kinds of questions that you may be being asked, especially because now there's like this confluence of back on campus, sort of more political divisiveness. Um, so, you know, there, there. I know there are no answers, but if you have any thoughts. But yeah, I can let Allie talk about the role of um, law enforcement um, and some of the like great ideas we've heard about campuses that are doing that in a way that feels less intrusive. Um, but I would also say that, um, you know, one of the concerns that I think we have as we've been talking to campuses is that um, some campuses have gotten away with, in the past, avoiding having controversial speakers because they say they don't bring any educational value to the campus community, therefore we're not going to spend um, money on it or, you know, whatever, cost too much money. And whether or not those are, like, actual things that they should be doing is another story. But um, I think 
one of the things that I am concerned about going into this election year and that we've ha we've had conversations with campuses about is it's really hard to say that a presidential candidate doesn't have educational value if they want to come to your campus. And I think some of the really offensive things and not to be partisan, but some of the really offensive things that um, some of these conservative speakers have said that have fired up student protests that have gotten them really angry and justifiably so um, are now being espoused by presidential candidates, some of them. And so um, I think it's going to be a really hard sell to say, you know, you don't want to invite someone who doesn't bring educational value if they're speaking from a platform of being, you know, one of the presidential candidates. And so I think we're going to see a lot of protest around the visits of presidential candidates or presidential hopefuls. Um, uh, you know, on various campuses. And so I think campuses are going to have to think really strategically about, um, you know, action planning and do we have a team in place and some of the things that, you know, we talk about during our workshop. But um, we have heard from campuses that, you know, I think do a good job of having a less intrusive law enforcement presence. But I can let Ali speak to that. And before Allie does that, I do want to just add in um, just the First Amendment lawyer in me, which is, you know, whether or not something has educational value is, um, as you kind of alluded to, Jill, is, an, is a subjective inquiry. And that if you're a public university, that's not going to be a way that you're going to be able to decide whether or not a student group um, can bring a speaker. Um, right. So that's kind of off the, if, if anybody is listening and thinking that's the way they're going to get around some of this, that's not going to work because you'll be uh, lobbed with a lawsuit. I think the quest, I think the expectation has to be that a speaker or speakers will come to campus in different capacities with different ideas that someone on the campus may find offensive and upsetting and hurtful. Um, and you need to be ready. Um, and so, Allie, I think if you could address some of these issues, I remember saying, you know, that it looked like a, a war zone when they were preparing for, you know, some of their speakers. And that was really scary. I, in conversations that we've had with campuses about how to address various types of uh, people coming to campus and various types of protest. It seems that law enforcement have plans on how to address those things. And different campuses have different plans. And some might be a softer look and some might be a more militaristic look. And in our workshop, we talk about what those different ways of addressing groups would look like on their campus. And so every campus is a little bit different given the size of their law enforcement and given the size of the student population and the types of events that they will be having. So in that we talk about what their policy looks like, how to make adjustments to their policies if they need it. And so when, when we talk to them, we give them different options. I think one of the themes is that there's no one size fits all, right? Which is, I think, a perfect you know, segue into talking about the actual training. Maybe one of you can just give some highlights about how it works and who the audience is. Um, and then what we'll be doing is um, launching uh, information so people can sign up if they're interested in potentially uh, being able to learn from Jill and Allie in your institutional setting. So give us some details. Yeah, I, um, 
And we're just really excited to be able to go out and work with campuses on this. It's definitely um, less a training and more a workshop because it's very hands-on, interactive. We're talking with them about their policy um, and thinking through who the various stakeholders to that policy are. Um, so we hold the, the training over a period of two days. It's four hours on one day and four hours on the next day. And that's, again, just to give people time to sort of digest in between um, and not to be overwhelming. And, and the, the format for that really was suggested to us by Vice Presidents of Student Affairs. And we were like, hey, if we were to think about doing some workshops, you know, what would be the most feasible for busy administrators? And they said, you know, the, the two four hour days works best. And so we split it into two days. Um, that seems to have worked really well. Um, it's designed for, I would say, mid to senior level administrators on a campus who would have um, a need to train their staff and um, also who might have either authority or some sort of role to play in policy, either development or revision or implementation when there are protests on campus. Um, but we've also found it really helpful to have law enforcement in the room. Um, because I think, you know, it's interesting because as I'm saying some things, you know, um, you know, then Allie chimes in and then the law enforcement nods when Allie speaks. And so it, like having her there and saying things um, like law enforcement, I think sometimes doesn't feel like they can push back against administrators when they're like, actually, we don't need to be called out for that. Um, but when Allie says it and then you have the law enforcement in the room, you know, nodding, I think it's a real like validation of the fact that um, we're sort of I wouldn't say unearthing, but sometimes we're able to speak, um, you know, into the into the world, some of the things that they may be feeling and, and be restrained by in terms of, um, you know, hierarchical structures on a campus. So um, that has felt really good to have them in the room at some, um, in some of these trainings. And so um, it's limited typically to about 15 people. But um, that's, again, just sort of because we really want people to be digging in on the um, on the content of what we're talking about and with, specifically with their their campus policy and, and what that looks like. Um, and one of the things that I, I had wanted to mention before and I forgot, Michelle, but I, I don't I don't want this to seem like we're doing this for a compliance purpose. But I will say that as we've been going to different states, um, we talk about the state specific context with them. So the, the training in that way is really customized for the state and the institution that we're going to public or private um, and what sort of outside factors might be impacting their policy or the implementation of that policy. Um, but there are now 14 states that have passed the Forum Act, and there's a lot in the Forum Act, and we unpack that a little bit in the workshop as well. But as far as um, if you're a campus administrator, um, one of the things you should know if you are in a state that has passed the Forum Act is that one of the provisions is that you have to train students and administrators about your free speech policy. So again, while I don't want to sort of blast it out there that you know what Allie and I do is a compliance mechanism, I do think there is a piece of that to it, that if you're looking to train folks, that this is um, one way to um, to get at that um, provision. And so if you live in Montana, Alabama, Arkansas, California, Georgia, Iowa, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Washington, or West Virginia, we're happy to come visit you. Um, but if, you know, and even if you don't, you know, have us come to your campus that we really do hope that you'll be thinking about that because um, it's, I think, both the right thing to do as we've found when we talk to students um, and administrators and law enforcement um, because there's a lot of confusion around this and it gets sticky pretty quickly, but that, um, you know, you're required to <laughs> if you're in those states. Well, and I'm going to jump in and say two things. First of all, I love that you mentioned the Forum Act because we, in fact, have another pair of fellows um, who just started their fellowship on July 1st who are researching actually the impact of the Forum Act, um, which is also really exciting. So I can already see 
the four of you doing a conference panel together about it. Um, and then the second thing, I just wanted to go back to something you said, Jill, about the power dynamics in the room. Um, it's so interesting to hear about a situation where law enforcement is in a situation where they maybe feel uncomfortable speaking out. Because I think usually people associate law enforcement being sort of at the top of the hierarchical structure. And so I think that's like a really interesting um perspective. I mean, I think your whole project is so layered and also in some ways kind of meta, right? You're you're researching how people respond to law enforcement in a moment when people are actually protesting the law enforcement. Like, that's kind of meta. Um, Allie, did you want to add anything just about kind of phase two um, before we, you know, turn to wrap things up? I think that uh, this uh, this workshop that we have brings a lot of people that aren't normally at the table talking about this, talking about this. And I want to say that there's, there's a lot of like eye opening things that happen because not everybody understands all the stakeholders that need to be involved. And at the end, um, hopefully there are more people talking together about how to address this so that uh, less bad things happen in the future. I love that. Um, and so I think I hate for our time to end. I think the last thing I'd, I'd like to ask is, you know, you're you're talking to a lot of people who are going to be going back to campus, right, and back to class and back to the quad and the dorms in the next couple of weeks. And I guess I feel like if there is something you could leave them with per this conversation um, in terms of what they might be thinking about or doing as they get ready for what I think a lot of people are imagining might be sort of a, you know, rough and tumble protest and, and conversation um, academic year. And I'll let either of you jump in. I think for me, one of the things that um, can be most beneficial, and it, it just dovetails really nicely with Allie's last point, is um, that you need a team of people to do this. It's not one person's job. Um, it's not one dean of students who has to respond to all of these things, right? To have a brain trust developed in advance of these things happening is really essential. And that when you know what the, the boundaries are um, of, you know, like, when law enforcement needs to be there, or if there's like a classroom disruption or whatever, right? Like that if you have a team of folks who can um, respond, who are not uniformed, um, as long as there's not, you know, a, a law violation happening, um, that I think what you'll end up doing is building trust, I think, um, hopefully between campus protesters and law enforcement in that they don't think that they're there to shut them down or they're not being used inappropriately. Um, and that's also just sort of meta, right? Like when we when we better understand when and where and how law enforcement should be used, which we see happening in the conversation, you know, nationally, um, that we can mirror that on our campuses by not calling law enforcement all the time um, in free speech cases where there's not a law violation happening. So I think having a team of folks that gets together regularly to both proactively plan, but also to debrief after there's been a critical incident um, is really just one of the best practices that I've seen. And there's a couple of campuses um, and I can share the uh, websites of those campuses that have a, a good sort of landing page um, that says who's on the team. So if people have questions about protesting in advance, um, they can sort of engage with the the team and, and not just get sort of um, sidetracked or sidelined to seeing, you know, like <laughs> directed to a, a campus policy statement that sometimes is, you know, tens of, you know, pages long that um, is written in legalese. And so thinking through um, a team of folks that is forward and public facing that students can engage with if they have questions, but also that is in a 
um, a planning and a, and a reactive um, capacity is really important. I agree with what Jill said. And um, I think that it's, a, I'm going to echo what the officer said in our interviews. It's, it's okay to protest. It's okay to, to exercise your first amendment rights and it's okay to go to places where it's uncomfortable, but you have to understand what the consequences are if you don't do it the right way. And um, I think uh, I'm going to end up here. I think that is an in incredibly important piece of advice. Um, I always say I don't really love the term free speech for a couple of reasons. And one of them is I worry that that phrase seems to imply that there's an absence of consequences. And um, there aren't that you can use those rights and hopefully you use those rights responsibly, but with the understanding that if you go beyond what is protected, that there will be consequences and that you have to be ready to face those, that the speech is not free in that way. Is there anything else just generally you want to add that we maybe didn't get to before we officially, officially close? I don't think so. I would just say this podcast has been a both a delight, but also really informative and educational. And we point to it really frequently throughout the workshops because we've had conversations with students uh, or with um, administrators linking back to the, the podcast uh, episode that you mentioned, Michelle, about um, you know the war zone and the, um, the folks from Penn and Davis who were on and talked about the consequences of counter programming as an option and how poorly that's being received on some campuses. So I just... I would continue to um, like encourage people to use this podcast as, a, as an educational resource because I get a lot out of it every single time, um, and I know that we are encouraging administrators to you know to circle back to some of those episodes that you've already aired because they're just really um, I think eye opening and, and can help administrators who are trying to think through some of these sticky issues. Well, that's very kind of you, and I'm just letting people know I did not pay her to say that. <laughs> All right, Allie, you get the final word. Well, I just want to say thank you, Michelle, for allowing us to do this research. And it's been some years and every single year when we do something new, I'm always excited because like uh, I haven't been able, and I tell Jill this, I haven't been really able to read anything outside of peer reviewed articles since this started, which is great, which is fine. I haven't read Harry Potter or anything, but, uh, which is on my list. But, and I want to thank uh, Melanie for putting this together. Um, this is quite an experience. Thank you. Well, we want to thank you. Obviously, when, you know, I was brought on to the center, I think one of my visions was that there would be not just great research, but research that had um, impact in the field and that the research would be carried beyond, right, that one year. And you're sort of the poster children for that. Though I will just add, Allie, that Harry Potter was written long before you got this fellowship, <laughs> but that's okay. I can loan you the copy of the first one. Um, all right, listen, I want to thank both of you. Obviously, you both have lots of things that you do um, in your day jobs. And so I'm really grateful that you gave up your time and um, we'll look forward uh, to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Next month for our back to school episode, University of California President Michael Drake will be our guest. In the meantime, keep your eyes peeled for an email next week releasing the research of the center's 2022-23 class of fellows. And be sure to register for our upcoming fellows in the field interactive workshops. And of course, enjoy those final fleeting moments of summertime. <laughs>